As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle, the Royal Pavilion and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% of major exhibitions, including the British Museum, Tate, the V&A and many more. Membership is just £73 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere 45 And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fav when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Just go to artfund.org slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life like a new job, anniversary or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over 1,000 original artworks from everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. And don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass on the door or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so delighted to say that my guest today on the Great Women Artists podcast is the brilliant, internationally acclaimed artist Shirin Neshat. Born in 1957 in a small city in Iran, Neshat was 17 when she was sent to the United States to complete her education, first at a school in Southern California and then to Berkeley for her university education. However, due to the Islamic Revolution in 1979, she was prevented from returning to her country for close to 20 years and although she studied art in college, it wasn't until 1993 that she began to make art again. Her experiences as a Muslim woman in exile have particularly informed her practice and it is through the medium of photography, film and video that she explores political structures that have shaped the history of Iran. Speaking about this, she has said, every Iranian artist in one form or another is political. Politics has defined our lives. If you're living in Iran, you're facing censorship, harassment, arrest, torture, at times execution. And if you're living outside, like me, you're faced with a life of exile, the pain of longing and the separation from your loved ones and your family. Having just been the subject of a major survey exhibition spanning 25 years worth of work at Los Angeles' The Broad, 
Shirin has exhibited at museums internationally, including the Serpentine Gallery here in London, the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., as well as a major retrospective at the Detroit Institute of Arts in 2013. In 1999, Neshat was awarded the Golden Lion Award, the first international prize at the 48th Venice Biennale. And for those in London, an exhibition by Shirin Neshat titled Land of Dreams, which includes the first UK premiere of her most recent body of work, is currently on view at Goodman Gallery, where we are very excitingly recording today. Welcome to the podcast, Shirin. How are you doing today? Very good, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So this exhibition, Land of Dreams, I'd love to get onto a bit later. But first of all, this exhibition does follow your most extensive exhibition to date at the Broad. I just wanted to know, just to start off, how it felt seeing 25 years worth of work in that exhibition. Actually, it was quite emotional. It really was... For me personally, it was like looking at the span of my life in the way that um, the work is so personal and it so directly reflects what happened to me throughout these years. You know, how it begins with the woman of Allah when I was in the U.S. looking into Iran. Then I went to Iran and I became exiled and then I moved on to other countries, to Egypt, to Morocco, to Azerbaijan. And then eventually the show ends in America where actually is where I've been living longer than anywhere else in my life. And also the evolution of the work from still photography to video, and finally in the latest work where all the mediums of photography, video, and now filmmaking collapse into one another. So how was it revisiting those earlier works? How did that make you feel? Well, it it was really, for me, I think the first time in my artistic career to see my own work retrospectively um, and see how certain things continue in in terms of consistency, but a lot has also changed. For example, the self-portraits, how it became so performative and how I played a role. And eventually I took myself away from the camera and the lens uh, focused on other people. And eventually I found my own doubles, my own muses and alter (laughs) egos. And I never really thought about it. There are four women, very similar in their physique, very small, three of them, very dark, like Iranian, actually. So they played the role that I would have normally played. And so I never really thought about it, how subconsciously I've sort of navigated toward finding muses. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible that you're seeing your life in almost someone else's shoes, but your perspective. And so in that sense, the work continues to be very personal. Yes. But I have removed myself in the physical sense, but everything is still from my perspective. And the physics of the woman is what I see women in the way they should be beautiful, in their simplicity, and everyone is wearing black. (laughs) (laughs) So that's like something that I never really realized. And another thing by looking at this exhibition is how I moved away from making portraiture work that is just single individual photographs yes. to groups of photographs. My photographs have become very narrative mm. and become more like portraits of nations, mm. you know. Like the land of dreams is, is a portrait of America. The ones about Azerbaijan is a portrait of Azerbaijan. Yeah. So it's, it's no longer about looking at a single photograph and the protagonists and capturing their characteristic. It's more about how the group conveys mm. something about the culture they come from. Absolutely. And I think from that, 
you know, as a British person even, I think that you can see that universality in the work as well. It's not just a sort of portrait of an individual, it speaks to everyone. It's really not a study about a person, but a society. I mentioned in my introduction you saying, every Iranian artist in one form or another is political. Politics has defined our lives. If you're living in Iran, you're facing censorship, harassment, arrest, torture, at times execution. And if you're living outside, like me, you're faced with a life of exile, the pain of longing and the separation from your loved ones and for your family. How have you tried to capture this in your work? Well, I think I need to add to that statement yes. I made that now we have additional problems yeah. living in America. <laughs> you know, before yes. it used to be just the problem was on that end. And I think uh, the recent development, really as we speak, is about even if you're a naturalized citizen, Iranian-born yeah you are facing issues and problems as travel bans, etc. So, you know, it's for me now, the latest thing is that I'm feeling like I'm fighting two battles. Yeah. And the two countries that are in constant conflict, but ironically, they're starting to look more and more alike. So why do you use photography and film then to capture these kind of transnational existences? First of all, I, I feel like I'm an artist that goes in between storytelling and capturing single images that I think could be as impactful and emotional. And so I believe in all these mediums. And I I feel that somehow by the moving picture, with storytelling, you can reach a broader audience. Mm -hmm. With some of the more stylized photography work, it's a little bit harder for the mass to, to comprehend. Mm. It's, they're very stylized, very conceptual. Yeah. So as my interest in the audience and diversity in the audience changes, the medium also changes to serve the, the different constituencies. Yes. But I think also that I'm so interested in political issues and to really find narratives that somehow are poetic, are lyrical, universal, timeless, and non-didactic, mm. you know, not polemic, yeah. yet politically charged. And I think that to respond to what is going on in the world mm. and in a very intelligent way without preaching to the converted. But I feel that more than ever, that especially as an immigrant artist, um, as an artist that has lived through very difficult personal times yeah. because of the political reality yeah. that I have a lot to contribute and yeah. I, I feel that both as an American as an Iranian artist I need to speak up yeah uh, both to the American culture and my own community and the world at large yes because I think artists voices really count and as one of the reasons I'm embracing cinema because I do want to even reach beyond the galleries and museums and maybe Absolutely. this is all too ambitious. No, 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 I don't think it's so but at all. being born an Iranian, I really take my role very seriously as an yeah. artist. And so I'd love to kind of go back to your life in Iran and your childhood. You grew up there until about the mid-70s. Tell me about your childhood and life in Iran pre-Islamic revolution. Well, I grew up in a very loving middle-class family in a very small religious town that I think is probably the third most religious city in Iran to this day. So I was always divided between a very conservative religious community versus my immediate family, who my father, for example, who was very progressive, very educated. He was a physician and, and had a 
very large vision of the world, and he wanted to travel. And yeah. He was a very ambitious man. But he lived in this small town, and he had to abide to the rules, to yeah. the codes. So I was always going back and forth between religion and a very conservative community versus a very progressive family. And I left Iran when I was 17, just before the revolution came, yes. uh, where the foundation was building. And I think that may be one of the reasons my father sent us abroad uh, as things became very complicated. So it was my generation and my friends mm. who, I would say, who brought the revolution. Yeah. yeah. And um, what must that have been like being in the U.S. at that time? It was actually pretty terrifying yeah. because I emotionally really wasn't connecting to the American culture for the first, I would say, first 10 years. And I found myself alone, away from the loving family. I was too young to Mm -hmm. really build the infrastructure in the way that a young person must. And so I felt really vulnerable and lost. And at the same time, the revolution came. And then to make things more complicated, the hostages were taken in Iran from the American embassy. So I you know, there was a huge antagonism against the Iranian students in my campus. And then the war broke out with Iraq. So the walls came down in terms of traveling back to Iran. So I literally became separated from my family for the next 11 years. So I often explain the foundation of my artwork. It's really the melancholy and all of the ideas that ingrained in my work. It's really founded in my emotional and psychological state in those 11 years, Mm. in the way that I felt displaced, alone, abandoned, involuntarily, because it was my father's choice, and really terrified. So a lot of the anxiety comes from that period. But those years at the beginning were the pivotal years for me that was extremely challenging. So you hadn't visited Iran in 11 years until 1990. And then it was those years afterwards that were clearly pivotal because then you also began art making. What encouraged you to actually start making art again? Because you obviously had been studying it before. Well, luckily for me, it wasn't an art ambition. Um, It really wasn't a strategy like, oh, I want to go back to art. Everything happened very organically. I went to Iran and I was just blown over by the transformation of the country after the revolution. And mind you, this is 1993, so it was, you know, not so long after the revolution. So things were still more black and white. Mm. But also the idea of reunification with my family and being back to where I belonged, it was so emotional for me. And I felt that I didn't want to lose this connection anymore. And I came back to my friends uh, who had gone through all this period of revolution and the war with Iraq. I really suffered a great deal while I was in the U.S. following my individual interests. And so I felt that there was something so profound about what they had experienced and something very empty about the life that I lived and that I really not didn't want to lose this connection. So yet I was married, I had a child, and yeah. I had to go back to New York. So really what happened was my curiosity developed to really studying the revolution, some of the topics, some of the ideas that were the reasons why the revolution happened. Yeah. I started to read, I started to interview people, talk to my friends, And then slowly as I came back and revisited Iran a number of times, things kind of culminated in 
Let me think about a visual vocabulary that could bring together all my findings and yeah. all my research into something that I could, as a visual artist, bring mm-hmm. to life. And and came the woman of Allah yeah. because my focus became the subject of martyrdom that had become so popular and almost institutionalized during mm-hmm. the revolution. And more interesting, how women had been so active yeah. in in this conversation about, you know, people who would give their life uh, for their fates, and then after death, they would go to heaven. Yeah. And this was really a strange idea. Mm. And for the woman who gave birth, would be, you know, committing, you know, violence and ultimately causing death, and then ending in heaven. So for me, all of these philosophical, ideological ideas were so interesting and yet complicated yeah so i tr- <laughs> i decided to spend my time really focusing on the martyrdom so came the series of women of allah yeah. and that became my entry point to the art world this series of work is just so powerful i mean it's something that i've seen my whole life and it's actually really interesting visiting it at different ages as well because you kind of understand more and then looking at it in the context of even today you know these are self-portraits of you as well wearing the veil sometimes with a rifle in front of your face. What did you want to say by this? And also, were the women wearing the veil and with the rifle and everything, what did you notice in Iran that you wanted to kind of convey at that point? To be honest, um, this body of work has been discussed and analysed in a thousand different ways, (laughs) but the truth is that all I was trying to do was not to convey my point of view, but to create a framework that yeah. I could raise a lot of questions. Yes. For example, this paradoxical between this intersection of love of God, faith, self-sacrifice of material world, of your own human body, but then cruelty and violence and this obsession with death. Yeah. Uh, I find this paradoxical, very fascinating, that how could someone really stand in this threshold Mm. of life and death, love and hatred? And so every image that I created with the female body, with the veil, with the text that were all poetry, and the weapon that suggested the violence, sort of were creating this conflicting dynamics between all of these different ideas. So it was a very conceptual approach from an artist who had studied abroad, Western, Eurocentric West, uh, art history, was coming from New York underground <laughs> scene, yeah. influenced by, you know, Cindy Sherman to Frida Kahlo, yeah. you know. But yet the subjects were so local and so specific to the Iranian society. So bring that underground New York scene and then take me to Iran. Yes. And then all, everything melted together. Now, you know, if you look at this Outside of that, Mm. for example, I had no political intentions. I've been accused of supporting and even embracing the Islamic Revolution, the government. This is not true. I was accused of criticizing the revolution. That is not true. (laughs) Um, And and so um, sensationalizing violence and revolutions, that is not true. So it, it really was an embodiment of who I was at the time as an artist, as a human being, as a woman. And, you know, how I try to frame my questions. Yeah. And that's it. I didn't really think about the audience. I am an artist and, 
it was just what I was compelled to create. I had no audience. In yeah. fact, I had zero career. I was, <laughs> I was just playing around, yeah. you know. And later I was accused that, oh, I tried to do this to make a very controversial work to please the Western audience who found this very provocative. It's so off the map. So, you know, it was not at all geared toward Western audience. But naturally, I lived in the West. Yes, so that's yes. where it was seen more. It's just interesting, I guess, because inscribed on the faces or on the feet or around the feet, there are there's poetry in Farsi. And I guess myself not being able to understand that is interesting because someone else can understand that and I can imagine that enters in a whole new dimension for that person who can consume that text. Well, the question of translation is something that no artist such as myself can conquer. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not just literal translation of text, but the nuances of different cultures. For example, an African art can be far better understood by an African than a Western, but their understanding would be totally different than yours, and that's also okay with me. So I feel that the best work of art are those that are really created very ethnically specific, but at the same time, they take off from there and become very universal, if that makes sense. And so for me, you know, the the relationship of the Western viewer to my work in terms of their lack of precise understanding of the text, although I provide a translation, yes. it's a little bit irrelevant because mm-hmm. they just need to have an impression. Yeah. They, the direction of the poetry is written by a woman yeah. and written about the social agendas and their response, you know. Mm. And so I, I feel that I can do my best in breaking down things and translating, but at the same time, I really couldn't. What were you trying to say about women at that time through the Women of Allah? Although... In the Western culture, we see this woman as very submissive and silent. It's opposite from the truth Mm. that Iranian women throughout generations, especially after the revolution, have been very vocal. They are able to express themselves emotionally, intellectually, through words of literature, you know, poetry to novels, to activism. And so the work that I'm creating is in a very subversive way, at first shows the repression, the oppression, Mm. and how women are defined and controlled and deprived from certain rights, but that they're not victims and they're not, you know, silent. In fact, they're very resilient and they're very defiant. She may appear that she's abiding to the rules, Mm. but no, she's really protesting and fighting the rules. So a little bit later on in the 1990s, you departed from this work, from these kind of portraits to working with film with this incredible trilogy of turbulent rapture and fervor. I mean, what sparked this? Why then move into this moving image? What did that say about your work at that time? There was a few different reasons. First of all, I was quite exhausted by this idea of this labor that it took of making a photograph and having them addition of six or so and writing one at a time yeah. original calligraphy <laughs> and being defined as this artist who writes on the photographs. I felt like, okay, now I'm becoming this commodity artist yeah. that, you know, all the good intentions are being reduced to this labor of writing. But also, I felt that these body of work were very politically charged to the point where no matter how conceptual I was trying to be aiming, it's still the, the discussion and interpretation and the judgments were reduced to a political discourse, not as a work of art. Mm. And I wanted to move toward a direction that was far more free of that 
directly political discussion and judgment. With the moving picture came uh, storytelling, yeah. landscape, the incorporation of music, performance, and theatrical interventions, and allowed me to delve into uh, a realm that it really was far more experiential mm-hmm. and than this kind of potentially didactic work. And then that moved toward magic realism and dreams and surrealism Mm. that further freed me from making work that could be only reduced to a political judgment, you know, discussion. Because you cannot attack something that is in the state of dreams or magic realism because it's disconnected from reality. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's so powerful about these works as well is that for those who haven't seen them, they are these kind of dual screen. They're even kind of more surreal in the sense that you're moving through these different spaces of architecture, physically and literally through the characters. What impact do you want that to make? Really emotional. I think by creating an environment, an experience for 10 minutes or whatever those video installations were, that allowed the audience to be feeling that they're literally inside of that narrative and whether they were Western or not Western, they, they really identified with the protagonist, you know, with the, with the narrative. And with Turbulent, I felt that was my most successful work because I didn't have to... We were talking about translations earlier. Yeah. That even though there was these two songs, one very ancient and incredible poetry, nobody really felt like they needed a translation. Yeah. They understood the dilemma, they understood the concept. So for me, this was a major departure that how through the moving picture, I could still be very visual, I could be very photographic, but I could bring my audience to the short experiences that they could be moved. Absolutely. I think I also, there's that in so many films, but Fervor, I think, is particularly emotional. I mean, I just... Um, oh, I'm glad you say It's that. so powerful because you put yourself in the position of both the man and the woman, and yeah. for those who haven't seen it, they're on different screens, and it's just the emotion in their faces. It's just overcoming, and I think it's void of translation. It doesn't matter what's happening in the background. It doesn't matter where you're filming in the world. It's about a universal experience. Yeah. I think that idea of opposites and that idea of making work that appears very Iranian and Mm. belonging to that very specific culture, but really taking off to talk about so many other things that go above and beyond just the Iranian society, and I'm, I'm really glad that you related to that video further. Absolutely. And then something like Passage, which you collaborated with someone like Philip Glass, yeah. was amazing. I'm really interested, just to, from a personal note, to know about the creative process behind this kind of thing. Does he come to you with the score and then you make the film with that? Okay, so the way it worked was Philip Glass is known for collaborating with visual artists and filmmakers to create new songs, basically, and then playing live with the orchestra, with the video in the background. So he and his producers came to me and they said, we would like to ask you to create a video that, you know, then I would make the music. Mm. And so can you do that? And say yes, but would I be free to the topic? And said, absolutely. So I came up with the narrative, with the theme that became what it was. And I talked to him about it. I actually shot the video first. Yeah. And wow. I showed him a very rough edit, and he started to develop the music, compose the music on piano. And then he gave me that piano composition, and I started to edit. Then I gave him back the more refined edit, and he did a more closer finished composition. And then I went to fine editing, and finally I gave him the finished edit, and he 
recorded it with the orchestra wow. and and he played live and oh of course gosh. he gave me also a recorded <laughs> version but i must say that all along the process i really had my doubts about you know i'd always worked with a woman composer susan yes. dehim and she was iranian and you know here he was a male western composer and i wasn't sure whether you know emotionally he was going to relate to my work but can i confess that i feel one of the most melancholic one of the most touching music ever made to my work has been philip glass yeah. and to this day when i watch that video there's a moment i'm not sure if you remember when the women are digging with their naked hands yes, yes. on the grave and as the body is coming and i i cry because yeah. the music is on a note that it couldn't be more proper but i learned that you know the universality and the power of music yes. that transcends our cultural differences I think that's what makes your work so powerful, though, is the fact that it is image, it is text, it is sound. It's so all-encompassing, which I think creates this, you know, as someone who also, for example, has never even been to Iran, you also really create this kind of charged atmosphere, yes, political, but also emotional, that can translate to the wider world. And just before we go on to your fantastic exhibition, Land of Dreams, where we are sitting in today, the work House on Fire as well. Can you tell us a bit about this work and how it came about? I'm really glad you bring up this series before we speak about the land of dreams because actually with Our House is on Fire is my first experience where I actually started taking a new direction in photography where I no longer had myself or any models you know in front of the camera but I actually photograph real people and I I seek them out and this was a commission by the Rauschenberg Foundation where they invited me to do any project that had a humanitarian side to it and that all the profit would go to a charity organization of my choice and I chose to go to Cairo because I've been spending some time in Egypt and I decided because previously I made a series of work that was about the green movement the arab springs all the the youth that brought the revolutions that was contagious all around the yeah. Middle East but the our house is on fire really was focusing on the elderly people who basically experienced the aftermath yeah. the tragedies in the following the arab spring yeah. the loss of children the this incredible violence that followed and the genocide that usually actually follows any revolution i went to near tahrir square where i had been present during the revolution and with the help of some egyptian friends i recruited some extremely impoverished very religious muslim older women and men and brought them to the studio and i interviewed them. Yeah. I tried to speak with them about what is their lives like and I also shared with them my own experience as as an Iranian woman who's been a product of a revolution yeah. separated from the family and my photographer had just lost a child a very young 19 wow. year old he was American. So there was a lot of pain tears and they trusted me they bonded with me and they began to tell, tell their story and actually cried. <laughs> and so this was one of the most human. I mean, I I could not say enough about how emotional the experience was to make this work. And you know, this was made in 2013 and only now I think this work is being seen. Yeah. There was a lot of questions about, you know, capturing people's suffering and tragedies, but I just felt that it showed the humanity of these people that very often we overlook yeah you know people on the streets people who don't matter and they became so dignified and 
I learned so much about working with people who are poor, yeah. who are in pain, and they're often overlooked. Totally. And actually, it's telling those truthful stories. Of course, you see what's happening politically in the news and everything. But actually, all these political events go down to who these individuals are and actually what an impact this political event has also had on them. And then we get somewhere like Land of Dreams, where we're sitting in today, which is an incredible exhibition with these cinematic videos that follow this young Iranian girl on an art assignment who is photographing portraits of all these Americans. And at first, you're not really sure who these people are. At the entrance of the exhibition before the films, you are confronted with these portraits in all different sizes in black and white. And then the video actually really explains the fruition of them. Tell us about Land of Dreams and how this particular work came about. There's a lot to say about this series. And I have to say, there are different layers yeah. of intentions. Number one, I felt that there's always this activist in me. Yeah. Even though I, I say, <laughs> I'm not an activist, I'm not a political artist. Yeah. But there is, I have to confess, yeah. and that I am a poet, but I'm also a, you know, an activist and I deeply care about the problems we're experiencing in America mm. today. Yeah. And and I have to say, selfishly, as an Iranian-American, I really felt that it was important that I turn my attention, my lens toward America. Yeah. Everything that I love and I dislike about this country. Yeah. The anxieties I have for this fantastic culture yeah. that I cherished for so long, yeah. you know, as the land of dreams. Yeah. You know. So interesting. Um, I felt that it was also really important to give now perspectives from an immigrant's uh, point of view. But um, interesting, how you've been living in America longer than you've Longer than anywhere. in my own yeah. country. Yeah. And let me tell you, I've lived in New York, but I've also existed and lived through areas that are, that I'm true foreigner, that yeah. I'm truly an outcast. So yeah. I know what that all looks like and what feels like. But New Mexico. First of all, I chose New Mexico because it's one of the poorest states in America. One of the most interesting in terms of the demographics, you have one of the largest Hispanic uh, Mexican community immigrants living in New Mexico. You have one of the largest Native Americans communities living there. And I, I was really, really interested as an immigrant to create a narrative that sort of visits just one state yeah. and gives you an image. But above all of that, there was another intention, as I told you, the Iranian-American antagonism, this historical tension that has been going on and on and on. And I, I thought it was really interesting to make a work for the first time that is funny, yeah. that is like political satire, is absurd, yeah. because I find so much what is happening these days is like theater of absurd, yeah. you know, between what Trump is doing, what the Iranian government is doing. Yeah, yeah. They're so similar and they're <laughs> funny. They're borderline yeah. funny. It's mm. unbelievable. Yeah, completely like, absurd. It's surreal. Like, yeah. surreal. <laughs> so why not bring this absurdity and this surrealism into the narrative yeah. and laugh about like Absolutely. So here's an Iranian colony that looks like industrial space that is weirdly tucked away inside of a mountain. And the people are wearing lab coats that should be making atomic bombs. But what are they doing? They're going through boxes and boxes of American people's portraits and dreams. And they're processing and analyzing and interpreting them. Yeah. For what reason? Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Maybe because they're trying to read through the subconscious of mm. American people to see the malice. Whatever it is, is the fanaticism, is the absurdity of the Iranian side. Yeah. Yet we have this poor little innocent woman 
who is an agent or a spy who herself is like a robot like everyone else in that very kind of Kafkaesque environment. And then she enters this incredibly beautiful, open, free landscape, Mm. which is the land of dreams. You know, it's like the Southwest, the absolute beautiful nature, which is itself very sacred. But then enters this incredibly dark environments of poverty, of people having nightmares about nuclear holocaust, about abandonment, about displacement. Mm. You enter this town where in different households everyone is faced with different anxiety and fear and whether it's religion or it's a Native American imagining losing her daughter which has happened where you know American government systematically took children away from the Native Americans and put them in convents so they could forget their religion and language which is something we learned to an immigrant that maybe came from Bosnia that has memories and these flashbacks of horrifying memories of destroyed home and violence and war and and so I just felt that it was our opportunity to put this Iranian woman to visit this household and hear their dreams but ironically seeing that their dreams and nightmares is not that far different than her own nightmares and dreams as an Iranian woman. Totally and I should add that I mean the film is first of all beautifully shot congratulations it's fantastic but so it follows a young woman who's an art student who I guess is sort of a fill-in for you, your younger self, Simin, who starts off her, you know, driving in the New Mexican desert. And first of all, it's already very expansive cinematic. And then she's knocking on the doors of these Americans. And it starts out that she's knocked on the door of this woman who completely just kind of shuts the door in her face. And then she walks opposite and she goes to this house that says something. What does it say on the, on the door? It says something like, you know, America, come the in. brave, free. Yeah. Free the brave, something like that. One of those kind of cheesy soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she gets to know this woman. And then I think that's what's so beautiful about it is the fact that she's actually invited into this home. Again, this woman who's got this tiny chihuahua. I mean, it's completely absurd. But actually, these two people who are from such different cultures, you know, geographically and kind of physically and everything and psychologically, actually how they can connect and how when you ask someone... It's such a sort of triggering question, isn't it, dreams? Because it can mean so many different things and then it kind of evolves into nightmares. Yeah, I felt that one of the most important intentions of these short videos was to show the common humanity in all of us. I really, I think that is the underlying message is that, you know, we are all so different and we are subjected to such different cultural, religious specificities But in reality, our anxieties, our fears as human beings on this planet are so common. Yeah, yeah. Especially these days, whether you come from England, whether you come from the U.S., whether you come from Iran. And so as human beings, as women, we are facing the same dilemmas. Yeah. And ultimately, I wanted this woman go to different households. And at first, of course, you couldn't be more opposite. Yeah. In every single way. way. But at the end, emotionally, you know, she really connected to her subject that she was supposed to consider as the enemy, as the one that she was supposed to hate. And and that's when she broke the code. And that's when she got in trouble because she started to really identify with them. Mm. And so it's our governments that turns us into our each other's enemies. But in reality, this is why I feel at home in America. And I love the Americans. But this is also why I can give myself the right to criticize Americans. Yeah. 
I think that is just so poignant. And I speak for Britain now. It's, you know, there's sort of whole concept around Brexit. And if you're a Brexiteer or Remainer, it just divides the country. But actually, in the day, if you take away all that noise, we're all just people on a human level. Absolutely. And we all connect to each other. And I think we need to communicate. And that the governments are one thing, but the people are another. And we are all subjected to different forms of tyranny. And I think we all need to take individual responsibility to, to voice our opinion about how things should be or should not be. And I think this is my contribution as yeah. an artist in a way that could convey that the humanity, it's what comes above and beyond everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone should see this video just because it just speaks to so many different people, every single background I have to say well. that this is the first time I showed this work at a gallery setting. At the Broad Museum, it was exhibited, but with 300 photographs and eight other videos. So it was really difficult, I think, for the audience to really focus, especially because each video here is 25 minutes. So I think this would be the first viewing of the Land of Dreams in entirety, focus, you know, mm. with the project. But I am really eager to see whether this project really communicates to our British friends and, you know, that they relate to it or not. Yeah. I'm not sure because it's the first time it's been really viewed properly. And it's the first time that you're exhibiting as well in 20 years in London. Yes, and it, it really means a lot to me because my last experience at the Serpentine was absolute highlight in yeah. my artistic career. Incredible. And then yeah. you were obviously here two years ago with your amazing portrait of Malala as well. Yes, I was really blown away <laughs> yesterday. I saw on the street, there was a banner on the street with Queen Elizabeth. And then it was a portrait of Shakespeare. And then Malala. And yeah. then a painting by Lucian Freud. <laughs> and I was like, good for Malala and good for me. We made it in this combination. I was like super proud. And I have to say to Nicholas, the director of National Portrait Gallery, Thank you for putting me in this company. Of course. But it was a great honor to be commissioned. I was terrified because, you know, Malala has been photographed millions of times. I know, times. but it's by far the most iconic. I, and I really, I think she looks like the Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> she really does. No, thank you so much, Sharin. As this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests at the end of the interview if there was a woman artist alive now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? It's a very interesting question. You know, there's so many great artists that, you know, it would be injustice not to name all of them. Of but course. I have to say that I'm not a painter. Yeah. And I've never met this artist. But Marlene Dumas <gasps> is an artist that I don't know where she gets the, those raw emotions that, and the way she just put the brush on the paper and all of that comes out that it's so primal and so powerful and goes right to the heart and the guts. I just wish I could do what she does. I have no idea what is she like, who she is, and I don't really need to know her. No, of course not. I just want to say, I think she's a phenomenon of an artist. She is. She really is. Thank you so much, Sharon, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 20th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the completely 
brilliant Shirin Neshat. I am completely in awe of all of her work and also the timely poignancy in which Land of Dreams has been made, which continues at Goodman Gallery here in London until the 28th of March 2020. I urge you all to see the show. This podcast was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Now on its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a 1,000 original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to curated selection of ones to watch. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. As you can probably tell, visiting museums is one of my favourite activities and thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions including the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £73 per year and for those under 30, it's £45. Just go to artfund.org forward slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.